all the way to Tracy Darby and worship team for leading us in worship this morning. And again, I know it's been said, but happy Father's Day to all of our dads. And uh, it's truly my prayer this uh, morning that uh, our fathers who are present in the service, really all of our men that are here this morning, would pay uh, special attention to the message from God's Word this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We've been looking for a number of weeks at the letters from Christ to various uh, real local churches in first century Asia Minor. And what Christ has to say uh, about them, what he reveals to them about himself, words of instruction, uh, words of rebuke. Uh, in some cases, words of encouragement and words of commendation in some other cases. And then draw, drawing out those implications for them, uh, and then certainly going beyond that to then asking uh, ourselves and thinking about how those things relate to our situation and relate to our, our church and our context and our Christian lives. Uh, so far, we've considered four of seven uh, these letters. The first was, uh, just sort of uh, in way of review, the first was from Christ to the church uh, in Ephesus, uh, the church that was busy falling out of love with Christ. Uh, we refer to it as the loveless church, the church that had its doctrine right, its theology right, uh, was very busy about doing much ministry, but in all of that busyness had left, Jesus said, had left its first love. And so God's people in that church needed to uh, repent and to be revived in their love for Christ and for one another. Uh, next was the letter uh, to the church in Smyrna. We refer to this as the suffering church or the church that was feeling the pressure of persecution and affliction but was pressing on in faith. And you'll remember that Christ uh, had, had, did not have a, a word of correction or a reproof for this particular church because the persecution that they had endured, Christ says, had in a sense purified them or, or purged the church. And so this particular church was simply told by Jesus not to be afraid, not to fear what was to come, and to be faithful to the point of death because uh, there, was, there were those in their midst who already suffered in that way and given their lives for their testimony for Christ. Then we have the third letter. This was the letter from Christ to the church in Pergamum, the church that was willing to die for Christ but not to deal with compromise. And so it was this very sort of odd situation where you had people that were that were in, in one sense very faithful in some ways and yet they were they were tolerating uh, sin and false teaching. Uh, this particular city, this city of Pergamum or Pergamus was sort of like our, you might say our Washington D.C. sort of in, in our particular context. And, and the church in Pergamum faced that daily expectation to participate in the worship of Caesar or emperor worship. So many in the church were faithful, but some were guilty of mixing truth with error and catering to the world. And so Christ had a all of repentance and a word of warning for them. Then last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Thyatira, that, that small city that served in a way as a, as a garrison and a protective station to keep the city of Pergamum safe. And what we saw in that letter was that the church had stopped practicing church discipline or gave up on guarding the purity of the church. So we said this was the church that was excelling in love and faith, but was winking at blatant sin. Uh, not a lot different from the church uh, at Pergamum, but we said a little further down the road in its corruption. And we consider the importance uh, of the purity of the church, the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is to be pure because God himself is pure, God is holy, he has called his people to be holy, and that we should strive to protect the reputation of Christ and the reputation of his church. And one of the ways that we do that in church life is by practicing church discipline, even if it's not a popular thing to do. 
And we looked at those passages and just reminded ourselves of how important it is for us as a body of believers here at Faith Community Church to, to confront unrepentant sin, to confront error, false doctrine, impurity, and, and division, divisiveness in, in the church. We do it not to be harsh. We do it actually out, out of love and faithfulness to Christ so that the whole church doesn't turn to compromise in the way that some of these churches have done. Now this morning we want to move on to the fifth of these seven royal letters, the one to the church in Sardis. This was the church with the artificial pulse. Uh, this was the church of the walking dead, or you might say the church that was living off of its reputation but had no reality. church that was living off of its reputation but had no reality. In my experience as a pastor and as a counselor meeting with individuals and, and couples and families virtually every week, what I, what I have found is that we have a large number of professing Christians that are dealing with this problem of complacency. Uh, folks that are, you might say, coasting spiritually. Men and women who have set their lives on cruise control. And, and sometimes, in my opinion, they are sometimes the most difficult, the most challenging people to counsel. You know, you get people that come in for, for counseling, and, and they are just neck deep in, in very uh, sort of flagrant ways, flagrant sins. Sometimes I find that it's easier to work with those people <laughs> just because of where they're at. They're, 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 they're quick to listen. They're quick to respond to instruction. They're quick to repent and confess and, and restore their, their lives and make things right in their relationships with others that they've offended and make things right with Christ. It's oftentimes more challenging, I think, to work with folks that you're sort of having to, to motivate them. Right? I mean, they're just in this, this place of, of stagnation. They're in this place of, of complacency. It's very, very difficult sometimes to get those individuals uh, moving and get them progressing and, make, and making progress in their Christian lives. So how do they get to that point? I mean, how do people get to that point of complacency? There are really all sorts of, I think, factors that contribute to that. And complacency is manifested in different ways. For some, it's through, you might call it, theological sophistication. So you have people that are trusting in their knowledge of the truth, their knowledge of God, their knowledge of the scriptures. But where that leads them is to simply build an attitude of conceit. They take that knowledge, they, they build those attitudes and those ways of thinking that they're more spiritual than, than others. And so it puts them in a very slippery place, very dangerous place as a believer. For some, it's making particular sins respectable and being soft in repentance, uh, allowing things like anxiety, worry, and fear, and things like impatience and unwholesome speech or a lack of self-control to become regular patterns in their life. And so they have somehow in their minds, their complacency plays out in the fact that they see that there's big sins and little sins, right? And so they deal with the big ones, the obvious ones, but then they, they make excuses and they tolerate the, the ones that they consider to be less significant. But then there are those who major on the externals. Uh, because the reality is obedience to the externals is easier. It's easy to do that, right? It's easier to have a it's easy to have a checklist of things that you just say, yeah, I've done that and that and that, and therefore I must be walking with God. I must be a spiritual leader. I must be making progress in my sanctification. But it's easy to do that. And so what happens with these individuals and their complacency is they just fail to deal with the hard issues. They fail to deal with spiritual attitudes, and they fail to deal with, deal with motivation. Much more penetrating to, be, to think of yourself and to think of your, your life in that way, not just about the actions and the things that you're doing, not just your conduct, but to get down to the motivations of why you do what you do as a Christian. For others, it's the love of earthly comforts, wanting material things or people's good opinion of us more than wanting to please God. Sometimes people have idolized their own reputation and become ashamed of Christ and his word. And so their, their complacency plays itself out in that they, they no longer speak of Christ like they used to speak of Christ. They're not as bold as they used to be, and it's because they, they're attracted, they're, 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 they're captivated by the attention and by, by the, uh, the recognition that they get from others. And they're afraid that if they speak for Christ that those things will be jeopardized. 
others have become grumblers and complainers, which is really about not humbling yourself under the word and, and the lordship of Christ. So when the pressure comes and unexpected things come into their lives, rather than trust God and respond with gratitude, they murmur against God for his providences and his sovereignty. They have all kinds of reasons that uh, for it, for complacency, you have uh, all kinds of manifestations of it. But we've all faced it, folks. We've all faced this in our walk with Christ. This threat of complacency, of complacency. Individuals uh, can deal with this, uh, but so can churches. And where there is complacency in the body of Christ, there is vulnerability. Because churches and individuals can become, as a result of their complacency, they become overconfident. And where, where human self-sufficiency is at the center of gospel ministry and body life and, and where the church grows dull in, in God's work. Now looking over, and you don't have to turn there, but looking over at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews warns about this issue of complacency. He says there, verse 10, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, the writer warns of spiritual laziness and its effect, when, which is a, a dullness and an inability to discern the truth, a complacency that springs from the lack of hearing and receiving the truth and the lack of a believing confidence in the future, a, a lack of receptivity for biblical knowledge combined with a stale and exhausted spirit. That's why in Hebrews 6, the writer encourages them to not grow sluggish. Because true believers always persevere and pay attention to God's commands as they grow in obedience. Being obedient to the commands of Scripture is, is the very means that the Christian grows in faith and becomes more discerning of the things of Christ. The Scripture clearly warns that those who are not diligent in this means of faith may prove to be an apostate and will not inherit eternal life. So the gospel of Christ calls all of us to heed the warning to not become complacent, to not become dull, to not become unbelieving, to not become, whether it's us personally or whether it's something that can be a more pervasive in a local church, but the scriptures warn us not to be spiritually smug. Possessing the wrong kind of contentment, right? Because we're commanded to be content, but what we're talking about here is the wrong kind of contentment and satisfaction. The kind of contentment and satisfaction that is rooted in self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And the church in Sardis had this spiritual problem. In fact, they had a reputation as a people with a lively, vibrant faith in Jesus Christ and they thought that they had great spiritual influence, but the reality was the, was the very opposite. They were actually devoid of influence. And Christ is calling them to repent from their current trajectory while pointing out that some in the church are not fake, they're not phonies, they're not caught up in his complacency, but in, but in reality are worthy of so let me read our text for us, beginning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, which were about to die for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. 
He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have a similar opening if you've been with us following sort of following with us in this particular series. It starts out there in verse one, the angel of the church in Sardis writes, so it's so to, to the angel or the messenger, that is the one sent by the church in Sardis to go to the apostle John, who is now taking this correspondence back to his church. And you'll remember that seven letters to seven churches, each of them uh, had a messenger there, and these messengers were, were taking back the letters to these seven churches that had literally been authored by Jesus Christ and penned by the apostle John. And as they moved along through the seven churches, the man who delivered his letter to his particular church would stay and the group would continue on. So one of these messengers, probably one of the elders or one of the pastors from the church at Sardis, is the one who gets the letter. And by the time the bearers of, 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 of the revelation reach the fifth, this is now the fifth city on their itinerary, their number would have dropped from seven to three. So again, they would start out in Ephesus, you would have seven letters, you have seven messengers, but then the, 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 the messenger from the church in Ephesus, after delivering the message, would then stay there in his hometown, the other six would, would move on, and they would move around this sort of circular path from church to church. And so at this point, we have this group of seven, now it was down to a group of three, and the three would have traveled 30 or so miles south from Thyatira to reach the city. Sardis. So it says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Before we sort of get into the letter itself, let's begin as usual just thinking about the location of this, of this particular church, which is the city of Sardis. Again, this would have been the fifth stop on the great circular coastal route, uh, and to a striking degree, and, and really, the, I think every, everyone that I've uh, read this week and, and, and studied agrees that there is a striking, um, to a striking degree, the history of the church in Sardis parallels that of the history of its city, and so it's good for us, I think, to sort of get this historical background of these particular uh, regions and these particular communities. So this particular city of Sardis was founded around 1200 BC. Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the ancient world, this capital, capital of the very wealthy Lydian, uh, Lydian Empire or Lydian Kingdom. Uh, much of Sardis's wealth came from gold taken from the nearby Pectolus River. In fact, archaeologists have found hundreds of crucibles used for refining gold in the ruins of Sardis. The city also benefited from its location at the western end of the Royal Road, or what they referred to as the Great King's Highway, that led east to the Persian capital of Susa, as well as from its proximity to other important trade routes. And so they had this main artery going to the capital of Persia, and then it just so happened that Sardis was an, an intersection of, of a number of other important roads. Moreover, Sardis was a center for wool production in the garment industry and even claimed to have discovered the process of, of dyeing wool. Geographically, the city was perched on an elevated plateau about 1,500 feet above the valley below. So it was situated on one of a series of hills that formed a transition from the lower elevation of the Hermas Plain, where the Hermas River was located, to this, the high elevation of Mount Molus. So each of these hills was shaped into the form of a small, elongated plateau with steep sides uh, that they, they terminated in the north in sort of this, this sharp point and on the south in a neck of land that connected them to this mountain. And so think of this, just imagine this large mountain and as this mountain comes down, there are these various plateaus that come off the side of this mountain. And at the end of one of these plateaus, at the end of one of these points was the was the old city of Sardis. And so you would access it primarily up the mountainside, but if you 
tried to get up the, the face, it was very, very difficult because of how steep it was. So it's very, very different from, you remember our description of Thyatira last Sunday, it's very different from that particular city. In fact, uh, because of its, its uh, topography, Sardis was an almost impregnable natural force fortress militarily. Uh, the small neck of land to the south providing the only access to the city, but even that was a steep winding climb, and so the city was easily defendable. Uh, the other sides of the city were smooth rock walls that were almost perpendicular, dropping down to the plain 1,500 feet below, and so this provided an ideal stronghold. And yet at the same time, it limited the possibilities for, for growth. And eventually, as Sardis grew, a new city sprang up at the foot of the hill, with the old site remaining a refuge to retreat into when danger threatened. So you had this, this city with a seemingly indestructible location. But that was exactly what led its inhabitants to become overconfident. And that complacency in time led to this city's downfall. A downfall that sent shockwaves through the Greek world. In fact, uh, let me read to you what Robert Thomas uh, says as he sort of relates the account of Sardis' fall. He says, quote, despite an alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, Crossus, the king of Lydia, initiated an attack against Cyrus, king of Persia, but was soundly defeated. Returning to Sardis to recoup and rebuild his army for another attack, he was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid, laid siege against Sardis. Crossus felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis and foresaw an easy victory over the Persians who were cornered among the perpendicular rocks in the lower city, an easy prey for the assembling Lydian army to crush. After retiring one evening, while the drama was unfolding, he awakened to discover that the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by scaling one by one the steep walls. And this took place in, in 549 BC. So secure did the Sardians feel that they left this means of access completely unguarded, permitting the climbers to ascend unobserved. It is said that even a child could have defended the city from this kind of attack, but not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch the side that was believed to be inaccessible. History repeated itself more than three and a half centuries later when uh, Antiochus the Great conquered Sardis by utilizing the services of a sure-footed mountain climber from Crete. This was in 195 BC. His army entered the city by another route while the defenders in careless confidence were, were content to guard the, the once known approach, the isthmus of land connected to Mount Molus on the south. So, so two, if you will, unexpected but history-altering defeats. And, and both of them took place because they looked at those at that, those, if you will, those three access points coming up the face of the cliff, they just looked at those as things that didn't need to be defended. And so they were overly confident. So there's, there's no need to put a guard there. There's no need to defend that because they have to come up this other way. In both cases, those armies actually diligently scaled those cliffs, those perpendicular walls, and, and, and took over the, the city. For Sardis never regained its independence. After that, eventually coming under Roman control in 133 BC. Uh, then there was the catastrophic earthquake that destroyed the city in AD 17, although it was rebuilt with the generous financial aid of Emperor Tiberius. And out of gratitude, the people of Sardis built a temple in his honor. However, the city's primary object of worship was the goddess Sybil, the same goddess worshipped at Ephesus. This was the goddess Artemis. We talked about that when we were looking at the Ephesians letter. They, they worshipped Artemis or, or, or Diana, goddess Diana. And interestingly, not far from Sardis, hot springs were celebrated as a spot in which the gods manifested their supposed power to give life to the dead. Uh, 
and an ironic note for a city, Christ says, whose church is lifeless and dead. Now, what about the history of the church? Well, the founding of the church in Sardis is not mentioned in the New Testament. Perhaps you said it was possibly founded as an outreach at Ephesus. We know that Paul went to Ephesus, established a ministry, a extended ministry there, and perhaps uh, individuals from Ephesus went out to these other communities and took the gospel to them. The most, the most prominent person from the church known to history is Melito, who was an apologist. He was a, a defender of Christianity and also served as the bishop of Sardis in the late second century. Uh, he was also the the earliest uh, wrote, he, he was also the one who wrote the earliest known commentary on passages from Revelation. So we don't know a lot about this church. What we do know from this message is that the church had, had passed its prime. And like the city in which it was located, its splendor was in the past. People in the church simply grew careless and indifferent to spiritual things. And the church, much like the city, declined over the years. Inter interestingly, it doesn't seem to have been troubled by persecution from outsiders. Nothing is said about pressure from pagan religions, although we know pagan religions existed in that community. Nor is anything said about opposition from the Jewish community. We saw some of that, some of the opposition from the Jews and some of those other cities. We don't hear anything about apostolic uh, fraud. We don't, we don't hear about, about uh, the Nicolaitans or other sources that were problematic in other cities. But it appears that those in the church simply opted for an easier life, which may have been why both the Jews and the Romans apparently left this church untouched when they so vigorously persecuted their neighbors. The answer may be its lack of spiritual integrity and devotion to Christ. G.B. Caird notes this, a commentator. He says, content with mediocrity, both lacking the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, it was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. So what's interesting about this letter is that you don't, you don't find these sort of external threats against the church. You don't hear about the Caesar worship. You don't hear about the Jews bringing uh, persecution against those, uh, those Christians in that church and that community. You, don't find, you, you know pagan worship existed, and you know that, that, that there were idolatries, and you know that there was a pagan temple, but you don't really hear anything about the pressure that was coming from those particular aspects of life. You get the sense that the church was so lifeless that the church was taking such an easy path that the world around the church was just saying, we don't have to worry about that church. Right? It's like, that church isn't affecting, right? That church isn't making a difference. That church isn't, isn't carrying the gospel. That church isn't something to, to, to have to deal with. Well, we just let that church go because that church is, is, is dying on the vine. In fact, those people are so, uh, so lacking in life that they won't even expend the energy to entertain a heretic. Right? That's basically what this commentator is saying. They won't even do that. It, it, take, it, it would take too much energy for them to invest in going after and, and embracing a heresy. And so these, this church is basically just sitting back in this issue of complacency, of coasting, this issue of putting your, your life on cruise control. That's exactly the dynamic that was going on in this particular church. Simply put, Sardis was the embodiment of inoffensive Christianity. It was the embodiment of inoffensive Christianity. And the Lord knew it. And the Lord saw it. And the Lord noted their complacency. And that brings us to the identification of the author. The author, as we've noted, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ identifies himself to the church in this way. He says of himself that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so he has the seven spirits of God, which connects back to chapter 1, verse 4, and is simply a reference to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is held by Christ 
and sent out by Christ with penetrating power and perfect wisdom, with an influence that cannot be assailed. That is to say the Holy Spirit is penetrating. He is comprehensive in his wisdom. He is full in his efficacy and omnipotent in his power. And so Christ is represented among the churches by this third person of the Trinity who knows all and whose purpose is to testify for the church. So it's all about the ministry of the Spirit in the church, and Christ calls this to mind. He is the one who has the seven spirits. And then he says he's also the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has the seven stars, which according to chapter 1, verse 20, are the angels of the seven churches. Now, who are the angels of the seven churches? Well, as we mentioned, these are the messengers, right? These are the church leaders who are acting as delegated representative, representatives of the churches. So Christ is the one presiding over his churches. He is the one who is, who is controlling his leadership, controlling the leadership of those churches, and by extension, the one controlling and caring for the church itself, caring for the people of God. And this is how Christ is identified to the church, as the one who has the authority to bestow or to withhold the powers of the life-giving spirit on which the life of the church depends. As the one who sovereignly works in his church through the Holy Spirit and through godly leaders. And this introduction served as a reminder to the Sardis church of what they lacked. Which takes us to the criticism from Christ. The criticism from Christ. You will notice that rather than the usual commendation, we have a criticism. So with, with each of the four previous Churches, Jesus began with a word of, of commendation, but when he speaks to this particular church, he starts with a stinging rebuke. And he starts by essentially sort of bypassing the commendation, or you say putting the commendation off and getting right to the issue, right? Just hitting it head on. This is what Jesus says. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So he says, I, I know your works. I know not just what you do, but I know the character of your works. That you have a name that you are alive. In other words, the, the name or the reputation of this church is to the effect that they live, that they have spiritual life. That is to say, they had a semblance of possessing inner life from God and eternal life. However, herein lies the deception. And yet you are Reflecting the superficiality of your Christianity. So what was going on? Well, the church was actively, uh, and they were outwardly active, conveying the impression of liveliness. But much like the city, the church was existing in the past. Its fame and the ministry of its members for Christ in the past were the basis for its present reputation. Complacency. That they sought to fit in comfortably with their culture. Uh, they sought to make the message of the cross inoffensive. To make it less offensive. To make it more palatable. Complacency. And the consequence was that a state of spiritual death prevailed or pervaded the church. There was no real vitality, no genuine fruitfulness. John MacArthur says this, quote, the church at Sardis was like a museum where stuffed animals are exhibited in their natural habitats. Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. And yet conditions had not yet reach the point of no return for this church. There is enough hope to allow for an appeal, and so we have next this exhortation from Christ. Verse 2, in the first part of verse 3, says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and, and this is the word we've seen uh, more than once, repent. Repent. The same call to 
the three of the four churches that we've already considered. The church in Ephesus, the church in Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, not the church at Smyrna. Now, why not the church at Smyrna? Because suffering and persecution had so purified the church there. So Christ exhorts the Sardian church to repent, which in this case is a quick and decisive change of thought and behavior. To repent at that moment in confession of and in turning away from their spiritual lethargy. To do an immediate about face. That is the call. That is the command. Repent. But then we have these other four imperatives. There's different ways of, of looking at these verses, but uh, the way that I've sort of uh, thought through this is that the, the, the umbrella call, if you will, in these verses is to repent. And then we have these other four imperatives that I think describe what repentance entails. So, in other words, Christ is saying, I, I'm commanding you to repent, but I'm going to give you some specific things to do, right? If you're going to repent, this is what repentance looks like in your context, in your situation. And so Christ tells them to do four things. First of all, he tells them to reverse their attitude of complacency. Reverse their attitude of complacency. And this is simply, in those, in those words, wake up. Wake up. It means to become watchful. To wake up and to keep on watching, which means that you confess your sin of complacency. But also that you, you are to be dutiful in the work of turning from sin and of letting go. Of letting go of your sin. A little boy once got his hand caught in inside of his mother's expensive face, and she was pretty upset about this. She tried all kinds of things to try to get the boy's hand out of the face. She, she, she started out by applying some soap suds, and that didn't work, and then she tried some cooking oil, and then she tried shampoo, but, but none of those things seemed to help. And so finally, she gets a hammer, and, she, and she's ready She's, she's to the point where she's ready to sacrifice this precious vase in order to rescue her son's swollen hand. But as she pulls the hammer back, ready to smash this family heirloom, the frightened boy cries out and says, Would it help if I let go of all the pennies? <laughs> and, and all too often, folks, that's our problem. Right? I mean, we recognize the sin, but we're not willing to let go of it. Right? And we're not, I'm not talking about letting go and letting God. I'm not talking about putting all this on God and saying, God, you have to do this and I'm not responsible for anything. I'm talking about holding on to our sin. We need to let go of our sin. We, 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 don't, want, we don't want to do that sometimes. Right? We don't want to let go of the world. We don't want to let go of our sin. We don't want to, want to let go of our, our love of comfort and ease. But if we don't, we'll never get things turned around. So you hear the Lord's assessment that you are dead, and you wake up from your stupor and self-sufficiency. You recognize your own blindness. You cry out to God for mercy and ask the Lord for strength to break your trajectory toward complacency. That's the first thing, just reversing your attitude about your complacency. Secondly, he tells them to reestablish wholesome spiritual principles and people. And we see this where he says there is strength in the things that remain which are about to die. Now, this is, this is Christ's command to forsake the sin and to actually turn in repentance and to take those worthwhile elements that have survived from better days of your Christian experience. So, so this, this, is, this is a call, and I kind of say, if you think about it on a church level, it's not just a call about sort of rebuilding and reestablishing what was there, but it's also, I think, it, it's a call from Christ for leaders of the church to repent. Because let's just face it, folks, churches like this don't get there just because their congregations are this way, right? Churches that are characterized as dead churches, the leadership of the church has to take ownership of that and responsibility. So this is also a call for Christ's leaders in the church to repent, and in some cases for, I think, unqualified leaders to step aside and qualified leaders to come. Why? Because up to this point, Things were stagnant and going nowhere. Their deeds were a routine of duties but failed to fulfill God's purpose and pattern. And no matter how many works were being done, from God's perspective, they were sadly deficient, not being motivated by faith and love. Thirdly, he says that this, if you're going to repent, that repentance in this case involves restoring faithful preaching of the truth. 
So notice he says, so remember what you have received and heard. Referring to either the content of what they had heard or the manner in which they received it. But to keep those things in the forefront of their attention, which would imply a return to a clear and spirit-empowered exposition of Scripture, publicly and from house to house, dealing with the whole counsel of God. Because that is the only way to build up his people in faith. And then fourthly, to resolve to continually nurture faith and obedience. And yet, this is, again, those, 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 uh, that very brief statement there, and keep it, and keep it. Christ commands them to, to nurture faith and obedience in their own lives and in the lives of others, which requires them to become a discipling people. A church that is serious about helping those who are not spiritually mature. A church that senses the urgency to help, that senses the urgency to equip, to train, and to counsel. And that keeps on giving earnest attention to strengthen every aspect of body life. All of these things are what go into this biblical call of repentance. But what about those who don't heed the call? Well, there's a warning for them. This is a warning to the unrepentant, second half, verse 3. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So a warning that indicates that, that the sin at Sardis included a failure to watch for the Lord's return. But if they fail to repent, Christ will come to punish stinking Sardis. And of all people, all people, citizens of this city, could appreciate what it, was, what it was to be completely surprised by the arrival of an opponent. And so there's this warning, and it's as if it's as if you can just you can think about their history. Think this is what's going on in the church. You're letting your guard down, right? You're not guarding the portals. Right? You're not guarding the door. You're, you're allowing sin to creep in. You're not being vigilant. You're not being sober. You're not being alert. And yet your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, lion seeking to devour. But then we have this. The commendation from Christ. The commendation from Christ. Which is unlike those found in the first four letters. There's there's no praise for obedience and growth. There's no praise for, for love or for faith. Uh, these things at best are the exception and not the rule. Rather, this commendation concerns those who have not suffered defilement. But notice, even those are in the minority, verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. That is to say, the church had a reputation for being alive, and there were a few of its number who actually lived up to that reputation, who had not soiled or polluted the purity of their Christian lives by falling into patterns of sin, who stood against the tide of apathy, who did not conform to the pattern of this world, and for that would be given perfect and practical holiness and purity in the future, first in heaven and then on earth when Christ establishes his kingdom here. And notice he says, they will walk with me, Christ, in white, for they are worthy. Which doesn't mean that they have done enough to earn their salvation and standing with God, but that they have brought their lives in balance with or equal to their calling. That's to say they have lived in a manner worthy of the effectual and gracious call of God in their lives. So it's very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, when, he, when he, in light of the gospel and in light of God's call and in light of God's grace in the gospel and all that Christ has done in our lives, he calls the church to walk in a manner worthy of that call, or to walk worthy. So that's the same way he's sort of using this, this, this uh, particular we have this initial promise directed specifically at them that is then followed by this, the promise to the overcomer. Verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I 
I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So we have this promise. It's threefold. First, the overcomer that, that is every true follower of Christ will be clothed in white garments as a priest of God with not a soiled or stained or, or filthy garments, but with clean garments. Some, some uh, use this to refer to the, the, the doctrine of justification, the fact that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the overcomer will be clothed in white garments. Second, Christ will not erase his name from the book of life, which essentially means that that individual will not apostatize. And John Piper explains, he says, the triumph required in chapter 3, verse 5, is guaranteed in chapter 13, verse 8, and 17, verse 8, Revelation. This is not a contradiction any more than for Paul to say, work out your salvation, for God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. It is not nonsense to state the condition, that is, if, if you conquer, God will not erase your name, and then to state the assurance that if your name is written, you will conquer. God's written down ones really must conquer and really will conquer. One side highlights our responsibility, the other highlights God's sovereignty. And then the third part of this promise is that Jesus will confess that person's name before his father and his father's angels, which is not some sort of perfunctory roll call. Right, or some ritual as Christ just kind of reels off one name after another. This is, an, this is a glad-hearted and open, a public acknowledgement and owning by Jesus of you and of me. As he proclaims, he is mine. She is mine. She belongs to me. Father, these are the ones that you gave me. And then finally, this familiar command familiar invitation in verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If Christ is the speaker, but it is the Spirit of Christ and the prophet John who is the mouthpiece of Christ whose voice goes to the churches. And we need to pay attention to his voice. We need to pay attention to his words. His, his words of correction and censure, his words of warning, his words of hope, his words of promise. All of them, all that Christ is saying, So Sardis was truly the church that was living off of its reputation but had no reality. But here's the thing, folks. We need reality. We need reality. Reality is another mark of a true church. John Scott writes this. He said, the church should, not only, uh, should have not only a reputation of being alive, but the life itself. The Bible devotes much space to the indifferences or to the differences between outward appearance and inward reality. Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other Old Testament prophets were at pains to teach this distinction to Israel and Judah. The temple and the local sanctuaries teemed with dutiful worshipers. Incense, sacrifices, and music were being offered to God with punctilious devotion. But as Yahweh himself said through Isaiah, these people come near to me with their lips, but, but their hearts are far from me. In the New Testament, we see it. Jesus confronting the, this very problem with the Pharisees. We go on further into the New Testament and see Paul time and time again confronting it in various churches. Scott continues, he says, we can trace this ugly tendency right through the Bible. It is form without prayer, reputation without reality, outward appearance without inward integrity, show without life. So to be given a reputation, folks, is insufficient. We need an inward reality and purity that are pleasing to God, that we not soil our clothes nor betray our name. No matter how bright our path, we must guard against misplaced security. We must guard against complacency. And, and honestly, that's why we're so concerned about pragmatism in the church today, because pragmatism, pragmatism is the path toward complacency. When a 
church becomes pragmatic, the end result is window dressing. Churches want to be culturally attractive to the world, but when that happens, everything of substance gets pushed away. Right? Everything of substance gets, gets pushed to the background. Preaching simply becomes a form of entertainment. Body life becomes easy and common. Without the depth of confronting sin and working hard on repentance, body life is no longer sacrificial service. Spiritual leadership is all about personality. Evangelism becomes social acceptance as a ministry that's devoid of the Spirit. Prayer becomes mystical. By communing with God without trust and dependence, it becomes egotistical. By demanding that God serve our needs, prayer becomes ritualistic. Feel better about your spirituality. Well, things may look good on the outside. Lots of programs, excellent projects going on at the church. No shortage of money, talent, or human resources. Every indication of life and vigor. This is what's going on in the church in Sardis. But outward appearances are notoriously Cannot settle for what once was. Cannot settle for externals. We need our inner life to be revived. We need to be loving from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We need life from God. Life from God that will change us from the inside out. Church, that's what we need. Men, that's what we need. Fathers, that's what we need. To guard against complacency. To set the pace for others in our families and in the church. May God, by His Spirit, help us to be the kind of men, the kind of fathers who have not soiled their garments and who lead with love and conviction. Now let's pray. We'll close with prayer. Um, I'm going to ask you to just remain seated because we're going to have brief Father, this, uh, this fifth letter, uh, what a blessing, what a, what a timely message for all of us, what an important call to repentance, what an important reminder about the dangers of complacency and coasting and not, not being alert and vigilant and, and the discipline Lord, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of life. And he is both Lord and the life giver. So our prayer this morning is that you would breathe life into our, our Christian lives. You breathe life into our worship. You would animate our deeds and our works and our service. And you would make us a living force in our families and in our communities. That you would refresh us, that you would awaken us from our slumber. 